0: Breaking the stigma of addiction.
1: This is Zach's Life,
0: a story of love, addiction, loss, grief, and recovery. Reflecting on Zachary Horton and others in our community, both, both inside, inside and, and outside, outside of, of their, their addiction. addiction.
2: Hosted by
1: Jim Horton of the Zachary Horton Foundation. All right, Hello, everyone. Um, I'm here today with uh, two special guests. Uh, I have a uh, Michael Pritchard, hello, Michael. How you doing? Good. How are you, Jim? All right. Uh, if uh, any of you in the past may have remembered, uh, Michael was on before. Uh, he um, uh, works in the uh, for the county of Fresno and is just such an expert in uh, so many things that we discussed here. So you can go back and check out his podcast that we did before. It was fantastic, and I really appreciate all the uh, all the time Michael's uh, spoke at some of our board meetings. I've heard him speak out in the community and. He's a real asset to the recovering community. So
0: I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: Thank you for that, uh, Michael. So, Michael, just remind our listeners again exactly what you do.
0: Sure. So, um, I I am a staff analyst with Fresno County Department of Behavioral Health. Um, I have been. I'm a drug. I'm an addiction counselor. I'm a I'm a substance use disorder counselor. I've been in the uh, field for about twelve years. Worked in a variety of different agencies here, um, including you know child welfare. Um, but now I work for department of behavioral health, overseeing prevention. And so I do a lot of community training. I'm the owner of covenant training and consulting. So I do that also, uh, on my own, do a lot of community training, uh, on substance use disorder and its associated problems. And, um, You know, I train social workers part time for a couple of academies in California. So (laughs) the direction of my my life has kind of been public training on this topic.
1: Right. Well, and and that's what's interesting because you introduce yourself as a counselor, which which are but but really you, you are the trainer. Right? Yeah, and, I do. I
0: do a lot more training and education than I right. actually do counseling anymore. Right,
1: and and much like the commercial for the president of the Hair Club for Men, not only are you the <laughs> yeah. owner of the company, Correct. but you're. <laughs> yeah. So that's so funny. yeah yeah yeah. What makes you such an expert? Well, th- that's right. that's the last podcast. Yeah, and we, I'm a person
0: <laughs> in long term recovery. I, right. I think people that in in the community you know know me uh, for that. Um, but I decided to to dedicate my life to this, um, and you know everybody's got their piece to play right, who works in this space, some people counsel, some people do prevention, some people do public awareness, some people do harm reduction, some people do. And so my, my, the trajectory of my career has become education and training. So that's, that's how I contribute. And I love it. It's great.
1: Yeah, no, awesome. Awesome. And, and then our, you brought a another special guest uh, today to introduce to our audience. And uh, I'll, I'll let you make the introduction.
0: Sure. So um, just by chance, I <laughs> um, uh, I have I have my mother here today, and I say by chance because she lives in Missouri, but she happened to be um, here. We had a family wedding. And so I, 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 um, we had talked about me coming back on and uh, I said, hey, uh, Jim, how about having my mom come in and discuss like the struggles of, of dealing with somebody with a substance use disorder in in adolescence and maybe some of the underlying problems that that, you know, um, were underlying that and what her struggles were and, and get a, a a parent's perspective on that. And so I'm happy to have my mother here, Helen Lewis, um, who, (laughs) (laughs) um, was a little reluctant to do this, but, um, she, she does speak on this. Um, I, I, wrote a book recently. She wrote, uh, you know, an excerpt in the back, which I appreciated talking about our struggles and our stories. And so, um, you know, I, I'm hoping by bringing her on that, um, You know parents will see that the struggles with this are common you know um and that um you know a lot of the feelings and emotions and and confusion and everything that parents go through is 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 normal and uh you know there's answers out there and um, i hope my mom is able to give parents some some wisdom and insight you know looking backwards over you know what she did right what she could have been done different you know those types of things so i'm happy to have you here mom oh thank you
1: Hi, Helen. Thanks so much for joining us today. And, and, you know, uh, I'm also very excited to have you here because most of the time when I'm talking with someone uh, across the table from me uh, and uh, the discussion comes up of a a child that struggled uh, with addiction, you know, I'm always referring to my son Mm -hmm. and I'm always talking about Zach. So it'll be nice to have uh, the thoughts from, uh, from somebody else. And so I I have a feeling that you and I have a lot of things and a lot of things in common. And, uh, so anyway, I'm excited to, excited to have you here. Thank you. You know, and for us to start out, why don't, uh, and, and I didn't know, and, and Michael, I haven't had a chance to read your new book, but I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it. I didn't know that you had written a chapter in it or had impact or influence in there. That must have been challenging at some level uh a cathartic maybe in a in another level uh did you when you were when you were when you were writing that segment did you learn anything new about yourself or that time or did new emotions or feelings come up different from when you had lived it
2: it What I found difficult was condensing it because this had been such a long process that, but because the, I wanted to be encouraging to other parents, it was difficult in that way because I wanted to say so much more, but I only had a small, um, you know, time frame and stuff to do it in, so... I I titled it a mother's heart because I just want the whole preface of this book was to help. And when Michael first came to me with this book, he said, "Mom, I'm going to write this book." And I and he said there's probably going to be things in there that are painful that I'm going to write that I, that I saw from my perspective. But when I read the book, there were a lot of things in there I didn't know. Wow. And it was it was painful. But I'm still not sorry, you know, that he wrote it. I wanted him to do that. So, yeah, it was it was difficult. But the hard part was just trying to figure out how I can condense years of this into something that was going to be encouraging to other parents. Sure.
1: Well, and so l- let's go back. And again, I don't remember everything of um, Michael's story, because, but I'm going to go back and listen to that podcast again too before this one goes out. That'll be great to, to have that background. But g- give me your perspective. Let's just talk, what was Michael like as a, as a child? And, and, and just kind of take me through the process of, of, of what, you know, what dealing with him could be like.
0: Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, give, give them the, the 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 before the major catalyst that yeah. that set it off, and after he was a
2: very very loving loving baby and child. Um, he he always wanted to be held. He was always on my hip, and then his fa- when his father got shot and killed. He was six years old. And he became one angry little boy. Hmm. And I think some of that was the fact that he didn't, you know, his father was an addict too. So I limited time that he could spend with his dad alone because his dad was an alcoholic. And I was terrified that he was going to put him in the car and take, you know, take off with him. So he spent a lot of time at his grandmother's. But when he went to his grandmother's, his dad would take off. And he just ended up with his grandmother. So he had a lot of resentment for me because he thought that I kept him from his father. And that's not true. A lot of times his dad just didn't show up. So after David was killed, he, he got very angry. He was an angry little boy. And I had problems in school. I had, um, I know I was on speed dial the principal's office, you know, he just could punch a button. (laughs) But yeah, he, I had a lot of problems in school with him, behavior problems. So other than that, and then it just kind of escalated. He started getting, you know, he started smoking, what, like 10? Yeah, I mean, just, you know, acting out and stuff. And then when he got into junior high school, it got Bad, you know. He started drinking about twelve, and yeah, but it, he. And then we had a lot of conflict. I was trying to, you know, control him, and he was uncontrollable. Right. So I and I took him to. I mean, we tried everything to figure out what was going on. Physically, they thought he had food allergies. I mean. I, we ran the gamut, and
1: and as a parent, as a parent, and I know with with Zach, you know, we did this. We went to counseling Mm -hmm. for years and years. You know, he had ADD. He Mm -hmm. suffered with depression. So did he. So so we went through all that, and but even in the midst of of when when Zach would have acting out behaviors, now he got never got in trouble at school, but there was certainly. And his was more uh, toward his adolescent years, uh, you know, when he would have an issue when he, you know, came home drunk one night, right? And then he'd be suspend, you know, I would mm-hmm. ground him forever and ever. You know, as a parent, my love for him never changed.
2: Mm-hmm. No, that's so true.
1: Yeah that that yeah. never that that never that never changes, mm-hmm. and. And in fact, if uh, you know, if if anything, I f- I think as as parents, or I'll just speak for myself, I would often wonder, you know, you know, wh- what is it that I'm doing wrong? What else can I do? Because my goal was to make his life, you know, perfect, mm-hmm. and it wasn't. There was something that I was, you know, that I was missing. I didn't even know how much I was missing. Right. So I mean. I, I mean, just in the short, you know, you're, you're calling school. We had had a couple incidences at school. So, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm resonating with that. And I'm, and I'm, I'm just remembering.
2: Yeah. Well, we, uh, I mean, I had him in therapy. And how old were you?
0: Well, after my dad, after my dad died, that was almost, that was an immediate, but it didn't, it didn't last a long time um, you know, the, the therapeutic interventions. Um, you know, I, I came from a family that cared, like I didn't have an unhealthy family. Um, I mean, my mom struggled cause she was young anyway and didn't know how to handle like the traumatization and stuff like that. But even up through my teenage years, you know, they tried to put me in rehab, get me mental health help. You know, I was hospitalized, you know, on, you know, I was on medication, you know, they put me in rehab. They tried to do everything, um, that, that could be done, but the root, the root of my problem was not fully understood by everybody, which I get into with my book. My dad's death caused a bunch of existential problems for me and I was raised in, in church. And so the, the, the uh, I had this, you know, understanding of, of, of why we were here and all this stuff. So, so I struggled with, um, you know anger at god and raging against my own existence and, and and a bunch of things that nobody would have known plus there was a lot of things that happened to me people didn't know and I felt like I was carrying that so my mom was not only didn't really know how to deal with with this but um and was young and they didn't have the the approaches that they have now but also she didn't know the whole story she didn't know and I couldn't articulate it very well you know so so uh it was um you know, I don't know what could have been been done different um, by my family um, at that time that really would have made a difference other than probably early on after my dad's death, I, I having some safe non-family related people in my life who would have taken me under their wing and actually, you know, been a positive influence on me because of my behavioral problems. I was labeled a problem kid and no, there was no, there was no, i I was alone and I was isolated and I didn't have any support from people in my life who actually would wrap the care around me. And so um, eventually I developed into a teenager. And then at that point, those opportunities were kind of done. So my mom was kind of in the dark. They didn't have a lot of good therapeutic approaches back then, but she did. And my family did everything that they could. um, And, you know, there's no blame in the book. As I tell the story, <laughs> I, I kind of, I, I, I kind of like tell it through the lens of how I understood things then. It, it, it sounds maybe a little blaming in the beginning, but there's really actually no blame. I was trying to access how I was feeling back at the time, Um, but yeah, I think there was just a, a lot of factors that went into this that really contributed to the problem, and and it, it was it was super hard on my mom and everyone else around me once it got into. You know, pretty severe mental health issues in my teenage years, and when my addiction got into, especially when it got into to meth and opioids, beginning in my teenage years, then then it really spun out of control. So.
1: And and that is so uh, challenging as a parent. When I, I know for Lynn and I, we did, you know, you, when you you do everything that you know how to do, mm-hmm. you respond to. The doctors that you're dealing with you respond to the school and you're reaching out for help and oftentimes you know the the school's response i think in times like this because you know and and let's face it they have a a set agenda and you know they want to keep their campus safe and so then oftentimes the bad students right i'm putting that in Mm -hmm. in air quotes right the bad students you know we just want to get them away we don't so somehow there's not a and, and I think there's some changing. there's some discussion around that. How do we how do we serve this better? And, and, and education may be more than just teaching someone with a learning disability how to read better. But, but maybe if there's, if there's actions that are that are so you know contrary to what we wouldn't see happen in our school, well, what's causing those? And then how can we give support and deal with that? And I'm not sure that that has been a focus of the education. System, because they've got enough on their plate. I think this is how they think we've got enough on our plate, and just educating these kids, you know, And, and so then they look for everything else. But and as a society, I don't know that we still understand mental health in the way that we need to to be able to to quickly diagnose, and then and we know that it's never a you know one solution fixes everything. Right, And so that's always problematic. So then as a parent, then we're left with, and while all this is going on, I don't know if there were other kids in the family, but you're working, you've got, you know, the car breaks down, there's stuff that has to be done on the house. There's still a life to live, right? On top of everything, it becomes somewhat overwhelming.
2: I had wonderful parents. And my parents were just involved. Just as, just as involved with uh, than I was trying to help Michael and what I couldn't afford they they paid for. So as far as the school goes, I know Clovis is, you know is a good school system, but they it's almost as if they they did not want to deal with Michael. It's like, it was like he wasn't going along with the program, so pff, he was out. You know, so then he went over to Gate. Was it Gateway?
0: Yeah, toward toward high school. Yeah, and in, in um, high school.
2: I think he got kicked out of there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they wouldn't even deal with him. So I was very fortunate that I had parents that were, and my mom was an RN, and my dad was, you know, like I said, he was a criminal investigator for the government. So they were. I don't know how I would have made it without my
0: parents. So well, during, during, the, during the high school years, um, she was dealing with problems on multiple fronts. So you'd mentioned the other kids, right? And um, so we, in junior high school, while I was going through this in my eighth grade year, going into my freshman year, where my, where my mental health issues really began to, like severe depression, like suicidal depression, anxiety. She was dealing with this. We also had uh, a, uh, my youngest stepbrother, um, was diagnosed with leukemia. Mm. So now my parents are having to deal with, with a, a kid who's physically sick with a life threatening illness and another one with a developing addiction, which is a life threatening illness. Right. And so the prior, it was like triaging, like, <laughs> right. So, so it was, it was, you know, and, 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 so that required them to be gone in my case, which was another perfect storm because like it was unintentional, like ha- having to take care of this really sick kid, um, you know with a physical illness and in, in the meantime i was like you know deteriorating not 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 doing very well either and so it was kind of like nobody's fault it was just like unfortunate events that came up in, in the family and in our life that that really strained my parents to the max during during that time period D-
1: helen during that during that time um so so now we're talking about your your adolescent years mm-hmm. your teen years your high school years was every day a, a just this overwhelming challenge or were there periods of hey things are going okay or hey you know what hey we had a good hey we had a good weekend together boy that movie last night was fun i mean uh, or, or was it was it
2: constant stress constant because i felt so torn with you know, Darren needing me, and Michael needing me, and then Jennifer, his older sister, I felt like I failed her in the sense that I had so much other stuff going on that she kind of got lost in the crowd. And she really felt like I favored Michael. And that that was not the case at all. I love them both the same. But Michael needed you know a lot he needed help and and I didn't realize until later that Jenny needed my help too and I've always yeah. felt horrible about that and so but no it was constant stress because every time I had to go up to San Francisco to be with Darren then I left Michael on his own and it was like oh lord protect him because I'm not here, you know, no one's here to watch him. My mom came over, but, you know, my, Michael's really smart, you know that. He can, he, he was right out front with everything, but I never knew what he was up to. I mean, he would tell me one thing and out the door and, you know, but it it was, it was, I was stressed constantly. I had a couple breakdowns during that period. Mm. You know, I I went on antidepressants and hid in my room, and <laughs> it was it was bad. It uh, was bad,
1: and and I think that at some point that highlights what we always hear talked about that that uh, addiction is a family disease, mm-hmm. and you wonder how it you know, and it does it affects everybody, mm-hmm. and not just and I mean substance use disorder that's one area, but then mental health issues also is mm-hmm. a family issue and it affects everyone Mm -hmm. and even the best of us are still oftentimes i think ill prepared to to deal with it Uh, you don't know how to you don't know how to And, and that's and even if you're i mean you know my wife and i are you know both college graduates and and i had even worked in the field a couple decades before you know and 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 we had worked in the mental health field together i mean and we even had some skills, and still it was, th- th- there was there was no way to prepare for it or to, to know to know what to do. And so you kind, of, again, I'll speak for myself. I remember, I remember oftentimes crossing my fingers and just to, you know every time that, that, you know Zach would see a new doctor or something. I think, oh okay, oh, yeah, oh, thank goodness. Okay, we finally got we finally got this now. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I can imagine, I can imagine someone with the child suffering from cancer and oh they finally get in they finally get him into uh you know was it MD Anderson you know oh okay now it's going to be okay you know or we finally get to the new you know here's a new treatment okay now it's going to be okay and then it's not yeah right and then it's not yeah and it, and it continues so well this
2: was like 3 years of uh Darren being ill and chemo and a bone marrow transplant we had to go up to UCSF San Francisco and there again I'm leaving Michael <laughs> you know who I know is having major problems but my husband was a contractor so he had to work during the day he had we had our own business and he worked during the day and then I was up in San Francisco so si- for six weeks when Darren was going through his bone marrow transplant I was up in San Francisco, so he had total freedom, which was horrible. But I felt so torn and stuck in the middle, you know, that it was it was bad.
1: Hmm. Well, I, I, I I can only imagine the, uh, again the, and and you had, and let's highlight this: you had support from grandparents. Oh.
2: Great that, support that, from that, that was yeah there, but
1: still that didn't that didn't alleviate all of that pressure so so now, looking back on that and and with your other children, how was that relationship, how do you feel about all that now and you've said a little bit you know you you had no idea how much you were taking away from mm-hmm. your from your daughter and how much that you were needed there. Have you reconciled all of that today
2: no. No, I mean, we talk and stuff like that. But Jenny, she was really hurt through all this too, and her and Michael were like oil and water. But I think she was really angry, angry with him because she felt that it was all about Michael. You know, so she's got a lot of of. Um, a lot of anger, and, and Jenny, when her father died, she never dealt with that, she, she was, you know, she just out of sight, out of mind, but I know that's not the case in her heart, so she's, you know, I mean, she's working, and stuff like that, but that's only been recent, she hid for years, I mean, there were years that she didn't even come around the family, at Christmas, at holidays,
0: and So
2: it's, I
0: worry about her. My sister was um, one of those people that um, I, she, she could find, (laughs) she could find uh, the strength in herself to up and quit on her own, which is incredibly rare. She would go through periods where I, I, I suspect um, that, you know, based, based on my own experience in my education that, you know. Thing, things were going on around substance use. And then, like, recently we saw her and she looked healthier than I've ever seen her. And I'm like, well, how did that, you know? So so she was, it's, you know, and it's the difference between somebody who um, has a substance use disorder that literally, you know, cannot control their use, right? And somebody who is a, maybe what, uh, misuses substances, but, but still maintains some level of control over their use. So, um, yeah, she her and I differed in that regard. Um, I, we, we had, we share common trauma me and my Mm -hmm. sister, but we dealt with it, um, in very different ways. And oddly enough, um, me and my sister share a lot of things in common and we're both strong personalities, which probably is the reason why we, why we crack heads, but, um, we can get together after years and, you know, if we're both doing okay, we can have these amazing, you know, conversations, but yeah, uh, that, what happened with my dad was just, and then when my mom remarried, um, that was that there were issues that came with that with that remarriage and then what happened with my brother and then at 21 he, he was a he was a um you know Clovis West football star and so was my so was my older stepbrother they were championship teams in the 80s at Clovis West they were they were they were you know well, he wanted to be Mr. California, the one who got sick. Oh wow. And so he was and a bodybuilder. He was, yeah. He was massive. He was like six four, two hundred and fifty-six lean at his biggest. Like and he died at twenty one from leukemia. And once he died, then the whole family completely fell apart after that. Like so, um and and, and my addiction was approaching its worst stages and now nobody could be emotionally available for anybody because my my dad's faith was shaken he was you know he went through this battle ended up losing his son my mom exhausted herself taking care of him and and you know trying to deal with the other problems in the family and everything just kind of like crumbled for several years after that Mm -hmm. and so um you know there was a lot of contributing factors um to the to the escalation of my substance use disorder that I think there's a lot of contributing factors in a lot of people's lives that we don't necessarily explore to the fullest in counseling, in therapy that really, you know, maybe could, should be addressed and dealt with like to help people get, get get clean and sober and actually stay clean and sober long-term. But sometimes I think that we miss that in the course of treatment, but this is just like a case, a case scenario of like what can happen in a family that can contribute to, right. you know, um, the, the structure of a family falling apart that then contributes to, um, you know, the substance use disorder worsening.
1: Well, and, and there's a, I mean, wow, there's a whole lot to yeah. unpack yeah. Uh, uh, here. And so let me just touch on a few things sure. that, that I heard that, again, I would like for people, um, you know, we we all want, you know, gosh, especially at the end of a podcast, right, I want it to wrap up with a nice, neat little bow, yeah, right, in this package that's all done. That's not how life is, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think, my life is is getting better. There's some things happening in, in in my recovery from my loss of Zach, but my package will never be neat, Mm-mm, right? No. So it's, and and that's not uncommon. But let, let let me back up. So the thing that I that I that I want people to to understand, and you alluded to this with your sister, and I I and, and we'll we'll take out whatever we need to you know, from this to to protect her. But I think it's so important for people. To hear that 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 people even inside the same family that undergo the same set of traumas can still respond to it differently, mm-hmm. we're still different. There are some there are some families where there's a series of, of people in the family that all get a certain disease, and then someone's completely untouched by it, or there's just one person that's touched by that disease of whatever it is, and no one else is, or it skips generations, right? And and so what. What I thought was what I thought was interesting, and you described Michael, your sister, as someone you know who maybe had misused uh, substances at, at some point, but never reached the level of of, of addictive behavior that you did w- with it. And and isn't that isn't that interesting? And, and here's what's hard to here's what's hard to get about to understand about that is that is that because I never you know because I certainly I certainly partied a lot. You know, out of college, and and uh, w- would even describe some of my use as as abusive. You know, drinking behavior, you know, on on weekends and and party times. You know, for a, for a period of years, but I still can't even conceive of what the addictive quality of the opioids had in my son's life. Mm-hmm. And and I think back now about. The, about the couple times when he detoxed at home cold turkey without it and the pain that he was yeah. in and I couldn't even wrap my head up because I hadn't experienced it well this can't possibly be real no, it's brutal. he's, he's got to be lying because yeah. that's what he does is he lies so he's got to be lying to me he just wants to get you know and, and I couldn't even I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around that and and people who 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 aren't in that in in, in a full addiction, they think because they've smoked weed or because you know th- they've done lines of Coke or because they've experimented with different things that they understand what it is. And there is... there. I mean, and, and now I get it. When I look back at those times and I see the pain and I see what happened, I'm just now able to understand a little bit of my son's depression because I know how... You know, I know the antidepressants that I took to try to get through the hardest part of, of my grieving process. If if my son was only half as depressed as I felt during that, that that was uh, unfathomable for a for a teenager to have to experience that for someone going through adolescence, right? So so I so I take that, and then, and then also I I've got to imagine from the point of someone who's deep into. Uh, their their disorder it's almost hard for them to understand what it would be like to not be like that you know to be able to just use normally yeah. mm-hmm. again or to be a normal you know what i guess what you got normies right yeah
0: i it's it's amazing so so my my, I, my wife's in recovery right and and she was um on the verge of going to prison um in, and she it was you know addicted to methamphetamine really bad right and um she she um had, doesn't use meth anymore, but she absolutely like can, can have a drink once or twice a year and put it down and never put them. She never had a problem with alcohol. Right. So people vary. You can't give me anything without me abusing it. Right. So, so people like they differ individually, you know, in their recovery, but you know, with opioids, I think we, as society, we over-focus on the physical withdrawal aspect. Yeah. That's really uncomfortable. So with, 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 dr- with substances of abuse, we always want to chase the positive reinforcing effects of the drug. People like to feel good and drugs do that. And so people will use for that. But with opioids specifically, the um, you have horrible, brutal withdrawals when you don't have them because your body adapts and you get sick. So you have these types of withdrawals. And so you, you have intense craving for the drug, for the positive reinforcing effect, and you're trying to escape negative withdrawal symptoms. And so that makes it kind of a double whammy for, for opioid um, uh, use disorder. But Um, What people fail to miss is that once the physical withdrawal is done, craving lasts for a long time after. Craving lasts for a long time after. And because it starts in adolescence, it becomes, um, the adolescents have learned that it's become their default coping mechanism Mm -hmm. for dealing with everything. So what happens is you encounter stress in life and your brain throws up drugs and alcohol as the number one solution every single time. And because of the positive reinforcing effects of the drug, um, it's very difficult to say, "Oh, yeah, you know that that'll definitely be the best the best um, you know stress reducing tactic." But it's hard for us to say. Um, we can also go and exercise. We can also go and and do you know something. Well, and, else. and
1: let me say, as a parent, I'm saying. Hey, you finally detoxed off of this. Yeah. Why would you go? Just don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't need to yeah. do it. Why do you need to do it? There's all these other things that the
0: craving persists and the emotional memory attached to that drug that is in stored in, you know, in the amygdala in our brain, which I won't get into because it's complex. Right. Um, but the emotional memory and all of the factual data memory, uh, of of that use, like who you're with, what time of day it was, all those kind of factual. Every time you use, is logged in your memory, and it becomes a default behavior over time. Um, and so, but the cravings for the drugs do not diminish. And I can tell, I, I'll speak to the whole community about this. It's not just about the withdrawal. Even when you you're you physically stabilize, there's there's um, craving that happens inside the brain for six months, year, year and a half, two years after you get clean and sober. And that's why we call the first year of recovery, the miracle mile, because it's not just about the physical withdrawal. And so people are having to learn to um, new coping skills to, to, um, to, to live life um, apart from drugs and alcohol, even when their brain is still throwing that up as a solution. And it's very difficult. And that's why, you know, relapse is so common in this early in recovery and especially for teenagers. um, You know, because, um, for, for teenagers, the brain doesn't even start, stop developing until the age of 25 years old. They're not, they, they, they still are in that space where they're not making mature decisions. And that's why we as adults have to guide them because they're not kids. They're not adults. They're adults. right? They're kind <laughs> of like in that middle develop, uh, developmental period. Right. So, um, yeah, so some people are very vulnerable to the effects of the drug, but I talk about um, in my book, and I want to say this, right in the very beginning of the book, I talk about that I never felt comfortable in my own skin from the gate in this world, from the very beginning before any problems happened. Something fell off. I think a lot of people feel this this um, constant anxious hum inside of them for whatever reason, and life was was never uncomfortable. But then as, as these um, traumatic events happened in my life, there was a lot of pain. And when I discovered drugs, I, it wasn't just like, oh, these feel good now these fix a problem for me. And so now they become to feel necessary. And so when I was getting uh, counselors would tell me, Michael, once we get you off the drugs and alcohol, you're going to feel better and life's going to go back to normal. And then I would say no, because the reason I use drugs is, is because my life was never that. And I have no reference point for understanding what comfort and happiness in life look like apart from drugs and alcohol. So you're, to, you're what you're trying to do the, the addicted person is saying no you're trying to strip the only the only type of happiness and contentment I've ever had in my life right, right. And, and you're trying to strip that away and make me live this miserable life and and so that's terrifying to a person in, in, in teenagers in early recovery because it's become the only I used to look when, at people, when were, you, were like, you
1: ever able to to verbalize that to your mom or, or when were you able to do it? Cause you can do it now, obviously. Well, I would well. say,
0: I would say this to my mom. Uh, I would say, but I, no parent could put the pieces together, right? <laughs> like I would say this to my mom. Um, if you remember mom, like I would say stuff like, I don't, I don't know how people are, are happy apart from drugs and alcohol. Do you remember that? Like, yeah. He's saying uh, stuff like that to he you. He
2: came home. I, I, he came to me one time and said, mom, There's uh, something wrong with me because I cannot relate to the other kids around
1: me. And so, and now as a parent, so now, Helen, let me switch to you. Because I had conversations like that. What did, what did you, what did you think?
2: Well, I was like, well, what do you mean? And he just, he couldn't, he just couldn't, he didn't feel like he fit in with, you know, I mean, Most kids are real happy, you know. They're having their childhood and their teenage years, and he just felt like he just wasn't normal.
1: And then, as a parent, I remember one of my responses was always, "You know, it's just adolescence. Mm -hmm. He'll, you know he'll Mm -hmm. he'll grow he'll grow out of it."
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Well, he he grew out of it, but it was in the wrong direction, you know. (laughs) But and,
1: and and that's what so so today though. Today, when he says these things, do you understand it? Absolutely. Today?
2: Yes. Another thing I wanted to mention too, when they're children like this, they don't have the life, you know, the life skills. They haven't learned those, those coping mechanisms. So, you know, I could see why they would just grab, you know, anything to make them feel better. Or to make him feel peaceful or, you know, content or whatever. I personally never had that problem because I never liked the feeling of being high. Because that made me feel out of control and nervous. Right. So that was a little bit hard for me to relate to with him. But I knew his dad did. Because I remember asking his father, why do you, why do you drink until you're like, passed out on the floor and wetting yourself? You know, I mean, he says, it's fear. And I said, what kind of fear? And I said, I have fear. And he goes, you don't even know what fear is. And I remember thinking, well, that's kind of weird. But now that I'm adult, I think, oh, my gosh, you know, that poor young man, he, he was really struggling. And his mom, bless her heart, wouldn't, she, she wouldn't air her dirty laundry. She wouldn't get any help. She wouldn't go talk to anybody. But I have to say also that there wasn't a lot. I mean, there was AA. There was, you know, there wasn't a lot out there at the time. So, it was just really, really unfortunate and really sad, you know, that
1: they couldn't have. Well, and and, and Helen, I think that that's, You know that's you know part of the mission of our foundation Mm -hmm. is ending the stigma of addiction, right? And it's about having these conversations Mm -hmm. and being able to, to to, and again, it's airing our dirty laundry. Mm -hmm. Yes, but it's the opportunity for for other people because I think so many people, even though your family situation may be extreme Mm -hmm. to others with with the kind of with the kind of layers of trauma that that was Mm -hmm. that was built and that was developed. But but I guarantee you that almost every family has one element yes. of some of that trauma, even if it's well, what happened to my? Because I guarantee if 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 this happened in a family of your grandparents, you know, a couple of generations back, there's still some of that trauma that filters down because of how, you know, of, of what's of what's passed down and in, in in some of the symbols or some of the rituals that families do. So even though it may not be directly as as damaging,
0: I, I, I want I want the community to know this and parents to know this, like and and really come to this realization is that, um, you know, people in general when they're not feeling emotionally well, will always seek out um, self soothing behaviors, mm-hmm. and those self soothing behaviors could be as easy as sitting down and and binge watching Netflix. Those self soothing behaviors can be a little overeating. Those self-soothing behaviors can be even too much time in the gym because we know that works or over shopping or anything like that. And all of those can be, um, you know, uh, habit forming and become problematic, but drugs and alcohol are just a self-soothing behavior that teenagers learn young. And they realize that that self-soothing behavior works better than all other self-soothing behaviors, but they do, they cannot, even when we're telling them this is dangerous don't go this direction, right? Um, you know, uh, our district attorney puts all kinds of messaging out. The de- Our department puts messaging out the county, like, you know, here are the consequences of it. Most people that use drugs and alcohol never become addicted and kids see that. And so right. kids are, are risk, they take risks. That's how they learn. And this prefrontal cortex in the brain that makes decisions is not fully developed. Mm -hmm. And so they are making decisions that have long-term consequences that they cannot really fully comprehend in its entirety until they're actually in them. And then that line between um, substance using, misusing, and addiction is invisible. And they don't necessarily know when they've crossed it. And when they've crossed it, then like you know, they don't want to tell their parents that they don't want to tell adults that. right. Right. And so they're just trying to, you know, to survive. So I got caught up in this cycle as a teenager of, of, of a major adult problem with addiction that, um, that I did not want to talk to my parents about or fully disclose what was going on. And for, for many years, I just kept trying to, um, kick it on my own, switch drugs, trying to meet expectations for for periods of time, going to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist telling me, Michael, um, you know, you have, you know, this mental health issue or whatever. And so they're looking at these symptoms, probably misdiagnosing me because those symptoms were untreated trauma and all kinds of other stuff. Tell me, Michael, you have a chemical imbalance. Here's some medication. Here's more drugs for you to take. Right. Yeah. And ended up giving me, um, Xanax, which is abusable, um, ADHD medication, which is abusable. Right. And, and so that exacerbated my addiction. So sometimes even the solutions that we adults look to, um, contribute to the problem and become problematic. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's really a complex issue, uh, to deal with, especially for parents, because we take people to the professionals because we don't know, but those professionals also treat people through the lens of their training, and not enough right. people are trained fully on 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 addiction or or even trauma and and how that manifests can manifest as mental health issues. We're getting better at it now, so it's such a complex puzzle that you know parents just really just need to you know be more educated and, and aware. And um, to this day, um, I don't know because I I felt like I was different even before all the trauma happened in the world that that some kids may just like struggle in in their own skin for whatever reasons from the beginning. And it's not necessarily a parent's fault or anything like that. It's just being aware. The one thing that would have made a difference early on um, is that because I was always in trouble because of my behavior, my mom was just in survival mode and people were trying (laughs) to get me to, to behave. Right. Um, I learned not to trust adults because it was always punishing. I had not one adult in my life who, who outside, outside of my family would have had to have been somebody who, who would like come aside, mentor me, uh, unconditional positive regard, accepting who could model behavior. I'm huge on mentorship to try to prevent drug addiction from developing in teen years. If we have problem youth very young, let's catch them and wrap care around them so that they, they, they don't isolate from healthy adults in their life who will help them go the right direction. That,
1: that is a message that that we need to hear. Yes. That's a message we need to hear. And, and as, we, as we wrap things up today, Helen, I would like, I mean, I know that you must be so proud of Michael now uh, and, and the more that I learn about his past, then I know how proud you must really be. <laughs> that, but so, so please talk about that just for a minute about about how life is for you now in in, re- in relation uh, to Michael, and maybe some of the things that you've learned that that has now has a positive uh, spin for you.
2: I'm very proud of him, very very proud of him. But I have to say, I can't take any credit for this. I mean, I spent so much time on my knees praying for this boy because I knew, I remember in the, he was high and we were out in the garage and he was yelling at me. And I said, Michael, this is not you. This is not who you are. He was high and he said, mom, face the fact, this is who I am. I said, no, this is not you. This is not the real Michael. And so I knew that. I knew that in my heart. So at one point, I just, when he, went, he, when he went to prison, and I called the police on him several times because, or his probation officer, because I knew, and this is what I told him, if you do not come get this boy, he's going to die. I'm going to end up burying my child. So they came and got him and he was
0: like, you know,
2: and that's when he, I think that's when he went to Soledad.
0: I, I went to, I went to was- I was already on Wasco, probation because yeah. of some stuff you guys will read in my book. I'm not going to get into it, but I will say this, like, you know, in that desperate spot, um, you know, it wasn't punishing the reason why, you know, the first time I went, my sister, my sister helped the police find me the first time. My mom helped him find me the second <laughs> time. And so I had these amazing faithful women that were like, yeah, we don't want Michael to go to jail, but also like, we don't want him to die. So like we feel safer with him being locked up <laughs> and, and, and treatment and stuff wasn't working. So there were s- some attempts and, you know, I'm all for law enforcement doing what they have to do to intervene in those situations. I'm not always for the way the courts handle it or, you know, how we look at it as a society where it always leads to prison. I don't think that's necessary, but we, we definitely, you know, law enforcement intervention is necessary and it saved my life twice, you know, and um, and so my mom was faithful to do that, but, um, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was a, um, that was a hard time for yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. But she, you know, she did what necessary. She prayed for me a lot. Oh my She gosh. made sure that she instilled, um, from the time I was little, you know, a uh, 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 faith in me and a knowledge of God in me. And, and that really ultimately saved me in the end, because when I got to prison the last time, um, I. Um, really turned to my faith because medication and therapy and all those things weren't working. I had gained tools but there was something, there was a spiritual connection that needed to be made. And once I made that spiritual connection, something changed in me life. that enabled Thank me to then so grab onto all time. of the for recovery tools I had prior and actually put them into practice. But exactly I couldn't, Horton I had no foundation. motivation to put those into practice as long Facebook as I didn't feel Instagram. like I had a if purpose a or my relationship with God was a mess or I didn't have any hope for the future. All of that was was found. And that's why what I think is missing, like you know, when we bring people just to counseling or just, there there are parts of, of us as people that really, I think, um, you know, there's a spiritual side of us that needs to be addressed. And sometimes in our society, we, we like, okay, the church does this thing and, and spiritual organizations do this thing. And we do this, uh, we, we do evidence-based treatment over here, but really it's both and and, and sometimes it, it, unless we expose people to, and give them tools and expose them to spiritual ideas that give them a, a purpose uh, for their life um, they don't ever fully get better. so it, it was it was really the spiritual spark that set the machine into motion but all of the things that I learned in recovery also that helped me know how to stay clean and sober when I got out of prison.
2: He went through seven rehabs.
0: Wow not not including medical detoxes yeah I was just yeah. Different we made
2: sure through. that, you know, he was getting the help that we thought he, the, well, the only thing we knew other than I knew that he needed the Lord. I knew that. But he, yeah, I mean, I'd, I would just tell parents, don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Just keep on fighting because there is hope. You know,
1: that's a, that's a great, yeah that's a great message. I know I, I speak, I speak with parents, you know, every, every week and, and especially after losing, after losing my son, I don't pretend to have any answers.
2: Well, uh, I, 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 I really can, don't. Either. I,
1: I can tell you, I know what, you know, what, what didn't work, mm-hmm. you know, and I know that there's a whole bunch of things that I wish that I had done differently and I can just tell my story, you know, mm-hmm. over it. and I think that's, but that's part of the conversation. That's part of, of those discussions that, that no one had with you as you were entering into your challenges, that no one had with, with uh, my wife and I when we were entering into our challenges. And I thank you so much for coming and just sharing some insight into. And, and, and that's what it is, the insight that people get to hear from us. It's not all rosy.
2: No, I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, it, I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, and I you can just, hear
1: the. I can still hear the pain, and I yeah. know that you still. I know that you still. That you still f- feel that you know, yeah. and that that's. I think for us, that's never going to go away. No, it won't. Mine,
2: mine just happened to turn out the best way possible,
1: yeah. and, and and but that, it might not have. And that's the other thing, Helen. That we need to do is we need to keep telling these stories, mm-hmm. and we need to celebrate. The the things that do turn out well, you know, and, and again, and, and, and Michael's, you know, one of those miracles for sure, you know, that, that, that we can say, and, and the work that he continues to do in paying it forward is just, uh, just tremendous.
0: My mom and people, they, they, I think people, mom, you take, you take a lot of blame on yourself, but the reality is like, you wouldn't have made those mistakes had you known. Um, And, and I, I don't think that's fair. Like, you know, I, I just want to go on and say that um, what my mom did correct was relentlessly love me and trust in God to help. And, 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 and that worked at the end of the day. I mean, she, she was relentless in her. And sometimes that loving um, came out in, you know, yelling and mean looks at me and stuff like that, but she was engaging me. She was engaging me. and, And there was real emotion there, like on her part, this is it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just all about, uh, um, what Michael was going through, she was going through stuff too. This is a relationship. There was, there was multiple sides to this. My, my problems impacted everyone around me. And so, like, I don't blame you, Mom, and, and I appreciate your perseverance. Oh, thank and you. And I love you, you for too. it. I love you too.
2: I, it, yeah, I just can't tell parents, uh, reiterate that enough. I mean, you just have to stay in their lives, stay on them, research there's so much now that there's so much help out there right right and swallow your dang pride that's another thing you know a lot of parents don't want anybody know what's going on with their child or in their family you know that's gotta
0: go my mom never broke contact with me to either jim i'll say that she never um she never like said well you know she at at 30 when i was in prison she wrote me a letter and said i can't do this anymore for my own for my own good. Right. But I was also locked up in a safe space and I was an adult, not that prison's a safe space, but it was better than the streets. I knew where he was. Yeah. So, so, but as a teenager, she would have never have, have cut me off. Never. And, and I think that she, you know, she, she could have kept distance for her own good, but I don't know that that's a a good strategy to, to, uh, you know, uh, you know, just up and cut teenagers off and, and leave them out there at a young age when they're vulnerable, and having a sickness, and the reason I say that is because there are people out there that, that sell that philosophy, and I think it's harmful.
1: Well, uh, again, I, I think that there's there's so many great messages that we that we talked about today, and I can't uh, thank you both enough for for being open and coming and, and sharing uh, and sharing your stories. Um, I look forward, Helen, uh, to. Talking to you again sometime, oh, sure. And uh, and and following up. And Michael, I look forward. I know we're going to have you back just to specifically talk about your book, and to you can give us some more uh, uh, those uh, nuggets to look forward to, and and then we can uh, reach out there. But again, thank you both so much for being here today. It's been um, it's it's been a real pleasure.
2: Thank, thank you, you so much. It has been.
1: And as always, I'm going to uh, remind everyone to reach out to someone today in your life and tell them that you love them. This is Zach's Dad. This has been an episode of Zach's Life. Thank you so much for listening. For more info on our foundation and for addiction resources, visit ZacharyHortonFoundation.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a story to tell and want to be a guest on our podcast, email me directly at Jim at ZacharyHortonFoundation.org.